you know, we were having fun and, and making people laugh, and we were having fun doing so. That's my point. That's how I entered show business as a comedian. You want to transform yourself and improve your life. You long to help people. You wish to become healthier, happier, and more successful. This show is your opportunity to learn how to use hypnosis to make your life better. Each week, hypnotist Robbie Spear Miller interviews people who have already changed their lives in amazing ways with hypnosis. These models can help you discover your path to making the most of your life. If you want to learn how hypnosis can help you reach your goals, this show is for you. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Spear Miller, your host for the Hypnosis Show podcast. And today I'm really excited to welcome comedian Tom Dreesen to our show. Tom has been in show business for over 50 years, and he's here to share with us the role of humor in learning and helping people with hypnosis. He has made over 500 appearances on national television as a stand-up comedian, including more than 60 appearances on The Tonight Show. He was one of David Letterman's favorite guests, sometimes hosting the show, and he also appeared countless times in Las Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, and Atlantic City with artists like Smokey Robinson, Liza Minnelli, and Sammy Davis Jr. For 13 years, he toured as the opening act for Frank Sinatra. Tom is an incredible storyteller with many colorful stories to tell, and he's here today to share with us how humor can help us connect with others and learn. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Robbie. That was a nice introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm really excited to have you here. I really enjoy doing these kind of things. Um, first of all, as you know, I'm, as you pointed out, I've been a stand-up comedian for 51 years, and that's what I am first, last, and always is a stand-up comedian. But one of my passions is also motivating people uh, because I came from such a negative background, a childhood background, that uh, when I first went into service, I wanted to not return to that negative background. And so I started reading, you know, uh, everything that I could find uh, on improving my mind, you know. And, uh, and now today I uh, give motivation talks at, you know, high schools, colleges, corporations on four subjects. Um, perception, visualization, um, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. So um, as much as I love stand-up comedy and love to hear the sound of laughter because it makes people feel better, I also like to help you know people along the path of life with some of the things that I did, I learned to overcome these things and that there are no failures in life, that everything is a success because every rejection I've ever had, I learned from and was able to move on. You know, because that's the way I perceive it to be, you know. Awesome. And so, and you recently published a book called Still Standing, where you tell a lot about your life and the experiences you've had. And I would love for you to share with the audience the, the stories of how you got started with comedy, because it, it was actually originally to help kids learn to stay away from drugs. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah, the, the book is called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. So it's basically a book about um, my childhood. It's about a little boy who had eight brothers and sisters, lived in a shack. And, and uh, uh, if, if you had holes in your shoes, you put cardboard in it. If a window broke, you stuck a rag in it. You know, We were raggedy poor. We had no bathtub, no shower, no hot water. Uh, and it wasn't during the Depression. I'm not old. I'm not that old, you know. Uh, but it, it was it, it, it's basically about this little boy 
Um, if, if, sometimes if, if I close my eyes, no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm doing in life, no matter where I've been on stages throughout the world, performing for presidents, um, it, it's, if I close my eyes, I see a little boy with a shoeshine box trudging through the snow, going from tavern to tavern in Harvey, Illinois, where I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, and shining shoes to make money to help feed his brothers and sisters. And while he's on his hands and knees in these bars, shining shoes, on the jukebox, Frank Sinatra is singing. And the book is about that, that this, the, here, you know, learning about a little boy on his hands and knees in bars in Harvey, Illinois, shining shoes, hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox. And one day, that little boy is carrying Frank Sinatra's coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. And, and I was a pallbearer, and I spoke at his funeral. So that's what the book is about. It's that journey. And all the tough things, the rejections, you know, uh, and all the wonderful things that happened in my life and, and how I overcame one obstacle after another. Still standing, of course, as a double entendre. You know, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a stand-up comedian for 51 years, but I've been knocked down a lot in my life and physically knocked down, if you read the book, as well as uh, mentally knocked down. But I kept getting back up again. And here I am today, and I'm still standing. So one of the things that we talk about as hypnotists is what's called modeling, and which is finding people who are really good at what we want to learn how to be good at and saying, hey, what are their values or attitudes or beliefs or how do they interact with what happens in life? And having read your book, I see so many examples of where you were modeling other people and you've also served as a really great model for others. Yeah, you know, I give motivation talks to the young comedians around the country. It's called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. You know, because uh, there's a lot of negativity in stand-up com- in comedy. I, I think that um, 85% of all the stand-up comedians I've met in my life are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, loved, starved wrecks. <laughs> and the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell a joke. You know, I like to think that I'm in the latter, but you never want to trust somebody that tells you they're sane. But, <laughs> but anyhow, so I tell them, do you want to become a successful comedian? Study the masters. You know, if you were going to become a brain surgeon, you wouldn't just study brain surgery. You would go watch the brain surgeon operate. And that's the same thing you have to do. Study the masters as a stand-up comedian. Watch those who are on those stages that you want to be on one day. And watch how they approach the stage, how they get on and how they get off, how they how, how they work and how they have stage presence and mic technique. Study the masters. So the same thing applies to anybody in life. If you want to be successful, you know, study those who are successful in the endeavor that you choose, or just in life in general, enjoying life. You know, the the one thing you have to learn very early in life is life isn't fair. Life just isn't fair. There's ups and downs, and you know, you, you, you know, there's rejections. There's there's people you love walk out of your life. People you love die. Um, hardships happen to people sometimes that you you can't believe that it would happen to somebody that had such a good life going in a hardship. But life just isn't fair. So how are we going to deal with that day by day? And it if you can control your thoughts, you can control your feelings. What a gigantic concept. And sometimes I'll say, you ever notice you're, you're in a car and you're in a good mood? You're driving down the road and you come to a stop sign and, and uh, you're in a good mood. And you come to a stop sign. And all of a sudden, you're in a sad mood. You go, wait a minute. I was just in a good mood. What, oh, yeah. I start thinking about that fight Robbie and I had. And, 
And, th- and that's right. That one thought changed the chemistry of your body. You were in a good mood. Well, if one negative thought can change the chemistry of your body, then so can one positive thought. I always, I teach that the mind is like a garden. <clears throat> Say you want to plant flowers in this garden, positive thoughts. So you plant the flowers. And what if weeds grow? Negative thoughts. Do you allow the weeds to grow in your garden? No, you dig up the weeds and you replant more flowers. And that's what your mind is like. It's a beautiful garden that you can plant flowers or you can plant weeds. You know, what I do sometimes, I take a glass of water in a classroom and I'll pour dirt in it and I'll stir it up. And I'll say, drink this. Someone drink this. And no one will. I say, you won't ingest filth in this part of your body. Why would you ingest filth in this part of your body? Negative thoughts are filth. Now, we, we can't control. They're swirling in the universe and they will enter our minds. We don't have to let them grow. We can catch them and say, oh, 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 cancel just like your computer. Delete, delete. Take it out of your mind and replace it with a positive thought. And then I say, repeat that positive thought five times to beat up that bully. There's a bully in your life, negative thinking. And that bully wants to control you so bad. And, 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 and so you have to fight that bully. And you fight that bully, like I say, with positive thoughts. I, 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 again, I will talk about that later, about self-talk, but about positive thoughts and beat that bully off of you. I'm not going to let you control my mind, Mr. Negative. You know. Mm. So as a comedian, you performed in front of 10, 20, 20,000 people, more than that, over and over again. And you, your job was really to help them get into a fun state of mind and, and laugh and enjoy life, laugh at themselves. And I'm really curious to hear about what your insight is about how you, you really got amazing at doing that. that. That's a huge skill to be able to connect with a crowd and, and move them in a positive direction. And, and the crowd is changing all the time and different places, different cultures that, on different days. So talk a little bit about that. Well, in perform, performing in front of 20,000 people, actually 40,000 in Hawaii one time, not because they came to see me, they came to see Frank Sinatra. <laughs> so, but but <clears throat> when I first started out, I was like any other performer, scared to death of getting up on stage. It was all new to me. I never thought that I'd ever be a comedian. It was the furthest thing from my mind. You know, as I told you, I grew up poor. At 16 years old, I dropped out of high school. I was going to school with raggedy clothes and holes in my shoes. I dropped out of high school um, at 16, and, and I worked in a bowling alley, and I ran with a rough crowd and everything. And, and then I, uh, at 17, I joined the Navy. And I went in the Navy, and I, I spent four years in the Navy. I served nine months in a Marine Corps unit called NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. But I, I got out of the Navy. I came, I was married and had kids, and, and I just wandered aimlessly. I went from job to job to job, um, doing well at jobs, but never quite um, feeling fulfilled. Uh, I, I worked construction. I wheeled concrete. I poured sidewalks in basements. I um, uh, I, I was a, a, a truck driver. I also loaded trucks. At one time, I was a teamster where I loaded trucks, and I dropped my teamster card and became management. I became a foreman of all these teamsters that I used to work with. I was a part-time photographer with my brother. I was a bartender always. Uh, in the wintertime in Chicago, you couldn't work construction, so I was always a bartender in the neighborhood bar uh, where I used to tell jokes behind the bar and everything. But uh, but I was wandering aimlessly, and I joined a civic group called the JCs. But let me let me digress for a moment. At that time in my life, I kept thinking, I'm not happy with what I'm doing, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I, I used to literally pray. I'd say, God, 
what is it I'm supposed to be doing? Because this can't be it. Sometimes I'd be in a bar with my buddies at one or two o'clock in the morning, and I'd look around the bar and I'd say, what am I doing here? I don't belong here, but I didn't know where I belonged. And I would pray. I said, God, show me. There must be something I'm supposed to be doing in, in this life. And then I joined the JCs, a civic group. It was in those days called the Junior Chamber of Commerce. They taught leadership training programs on how to tackle the problems of your community. And the JCs were worldwide, by the way. But how to tackle the problems of your specific community and, and how to um, help uh, turn those problems around. By doing that, they taught you how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, how to um, uh, become a leader. They had leadership training programs and a speak-up program to teach you how to speak in front of an audience. And so I got very involved in that. I was very passionate about that. And one of the biggest problems in our community in those days, as it is today, were our youth using drugs. So I decided to write a drug education program teaching elementary school children the ills of drug abuse, eighth graders specifically. At that time, they weren't teaching drug education at a college or a high school level, let alone at an elementary school level. But I knew that we had to get to these kids soon, you know, before they, they were introduced to drugs. We found out later that they were being introduced to drugs in fifth and sixth grade, you know. But I came up with this concept, wrote, outlined it, and wrote it, and I was pitching it at a JC meeting so the JCs could sanction it. And at that meeting, a young guy had graduated from Norfolk State College. E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep, and he joined the JCs that night. Again, as fate would have it, it's God's answering my prayers. I was saying, what am I supposed to be doing? You know, and anyhow, now I pitched this drug education program, and the JCs agreed to sanction it. And I had a guy going to help me, a guy named John DeBoer. At the end of this meeting, this black guy came up to me and he said to me, I just, you know, I just joined the JCs tonight. Could I help you with that project? That sounds interesting. I said, gee, I already have a guy, but thank you. Again, as fate would have it, the next day, my friend John DeBoer called me and said, Tom, I can't help you with that project. I got a new job. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. I called him. We worked on the project for a couple of weeks. We went in the school systems. The program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JCs use it as a model program on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. They use it through all their publications. And the program became very successful. The moment I walked into that classroom with my black friend, Tim Reed, I realized what a godsend this was because the students were integrated. They were black and white. So when we walked into that classroom, you know, we got their attention immediately. We were young guys and we played music and we did jokes off of one another, teasing one another, getting the kids laughing. And then we planted the seeds once we opened up their minds of the ills of drug abuse in that community. One day, after about eight months of teaching this, a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. So we start writing material, what we thought would be funny. We didn't have a clue on how to do this. And, uh, and there were no comedy clubs in those days. You know, there were, you, so you had to go to nightclubs. We eventually went to some jazz clubs and convinced the owners to let us, when the jazz group takes a break, could we get up and try to make the audience laugh? And on stage, the first time that I got a laugh, something I had written, the first time I ever went on stage, it was like, an epiphany, like the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through, like one of those old B movies, you know, and my whole being went, oh, yeah, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to make a living making people laugh. I mean, it was like my prayers. It was like God saying, boom, this is what you're supposed to do. That night, I couldn't sleep all night long. I, I was tossing and turning because I found out what I wanted. It was a Friday night. On Saturday morning, I got up and I went to the local church where I had been an altar boy 
where I sang in the choir as a little boy, where my mother sang in the choir when she was a little girl. It was called Ascension Church in Harvey, Illinois. There was no service. There was, I was the only one in church. I went in and I knelt down and I prayed. I said, God, now I know what I want. I want to make people laugh. If you could let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I promise you I'll do charities. I'm making all these promises. And that was September 1969. In September 2019, 50 years later, I went back to that church. And on a Sunday, I gave a sermon on the power of prayer to that congregation. And I told them that I knelt right over there 50 years ago. And I prayed that I could make a living as a stand-up comedian. I didn't say, could I be a star? None of the other things. The thought that you might make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. And all my prayers were answered. And I tell them, basically, <clears throat> the power of prayer is, I said, how many of you in this congregation were thinking about somebody? And you hadn't seen that person in years. And the phone rings, and it's that person. How many times have you been thinking about someone you hadn't seen for a while, and you're walking down the street, and you bump into that person? You say, I was just thinking about you, Robbie. And you say, well, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about you, too. Now, I said, how many has that happened? And the whole congregation raised their hands. I said, if human beings can transfer thought, and obviously we can, we all just admitted that we could do this. I said, how much can you transfer thought to a supreme being or a supreme being transfer thought to you? So, you know, that's what I think prayer is about. But mm -hmm. well, let, me, let me just say, Tim and I went on to become America's first black and white comedy team. We stayed together six years. Uh, the team split up. It broke my heart. I never wanted the team to split up. I thought that Tim and Tom could be the greatest comedy team of all time. That was what my goal was. Uh, but Tim wanted to be more of an actor, and a woman kind of broke up our, our lives. It's in our book. We wrote a book years ago called Tim and Tom, an American comedy in black and white. And now there's heavy talk about it becoming a miniseries, a six one-hour miniseries of what it was like touring the nation as the first black and white comedy team from 1969 to 1975 when there were no comedy clubs. We worked all black clubs in the North and the South. We worked all white nightclubs in the North and the South. <clears throat> and we, we paid dues that no other act ever had to pay. Uh, it, it was very interesting um, of, of what we endured, you know. We, did, we went anywhere there was racial tension, we would go perform. We didn't preach. We just made people laugh. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did colleges. We did high schools. Anywhere there was racial tension, that's where we went to make people laugh. And I'll take this to my grave, and I know Tim will too. I can't tell you how many times in those years that after we performed, a young black kid would come up to us and say, you know, I have a white friend. Now, keep in mind, this is 69, 70, 71. The world was in turmoil. The Vietnam War was raging. You know, I, I just got out of the service. Tim just got out of college. Students were protesting the Vietnam War all across the country. African Americans, African Americans were rioting in every major city, feeling disenfranchised from the system. So there was riots. There was students protesting. In the middle of all this, we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. And I can tell you again, I repeat, that a black kid would come up and say, you know, I have a white friend that I'd like to reach out to. But if I do, the brothers are going to wear me out. But after watching you and Tim having so much fun up there, I'm going to reach out to, to my white friend. And then a white kid would come up and say, you know, I have a black friend. And I really like the guy. But if I reach out to him. I know the white guys are going to call me names, but after watching you and Tim, I'm going to do that. You know, see that you cannot legislate love. Governments talking about we all have to get along. They can't legislate love. Race relations are simply about race relations. 
And so when they saw Tim and I on stage, they saw two guys who were having race relations. You know, we were having fun and, and making people laugh, and we were having fun doing so. And, and, uh, and so, uh, I mean, that's my point. Um, that's how I entered show business as a comedian. So for, for our audience, Tim Reed was uh, Venus Flytrap on WKRP in Cincinnati. That's how most people know him. Not only Venus Flytrap, he was on a show called uh, Simon and Simon. He was on a show recently called Sister, Sister with two black twins. He was the father. Uh, he was on um, maybe 10 sitcoms. Yeah. He's a very successful actor, director. And we're the best of friends to this day. We, we've always remained friends. And his, his children, I've known his children before they were born. You know what I mean? He... They call me Uncle Tom, which is really funny in itself. That is you know, funny, gonna, yeah. <laughs> whenever they they say Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom, I'll tell you a quick funny story. We were at no, after um, the book came out, Tim and I were on a tour, and we went to Norfolk State College, an historical black college where Tim graduated from, and we were going to speak to the students. And prior to that, they had a brunch, and I was in the buffet line with seven college uh, professors, seven black men, college professors, and we were getting our food. And Tim Reed's daughter, Tori, hadn't seen me in a year. And she came in the door. She's about like maybe 30 yards from me. And she starts hollering, Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom. She's yelling. yelling. <laughs> and these professors turned around and looked at her. And I said, <laughs> she's talking to me. You know, and she ran up and hugged me. Anyhow, yeah, <sighs> Tim went on to become a very, very successful actor. Uh, again, with the best of friends to this day. I went on my own and came out here to the West Coast. Uh, I had my wife and three kids in Chicago. My wife wanted me out of show business. She never wanted me in the business in the first place. And uh, when the team stood up, I was sitting in a bar with a buddy of mine where I used to attend bars sometimes. And he was attending bar. He owned the bar. And I was at the end of the bar. It was like 2 o'clock in the morning. They were closing up the bar. And I was drinking beer. I, I used to love to drink beer. And I, I was sitting there thinking, the team stood up. What am I going to do? I was always very good at alternative alternatives in my life, saying, okay, you're not painted into a corner. How do I get out of this? What, what, what can I do? And I thought, I can do one of three things. I can find another black guy and do the same act. I could get a job in a factory and make my wife happy and give up this dream of mine. Or I could go it alone and become a stand-up. And I had never been on stage alone before. And sitting at that bar, I said, I know what. I know what. I, I'm going to be a stand-up. I'm going to... I'm going on my own and make it as a stand-up comedian. I don't want to leave this dream of mine. And I thought, okay, once I made up my mind, you know, how am I going to go about this? I said, I know I want to become a stand-up comedian. And I'm going to get to the Tonight Show. In those days, in 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? They say, well, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? They've been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America. You just want a comedian. They didn't say the Tonight Show. They said Johnny Carson, you know. So Johnny Carson, one appearance, Freddie Prince appeared on The Tonight Show in 1975, one appearance, and the next day he got a sitcom. So all the comedians began to migrate to the West Coast to get on Johnny Carson's show from all over the land. They were Because if you could get on The Johnny Carson Show, your life would change. While I'm in the bar, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to go it alone. And I set my goal that I was going to do The Tonight Show. And I remember a book I read by W. Clement Stone called Positive Mental Attitude. He said, if you know what you want in life, and if it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything in your life that can deter you from that noble achievement and then get it out. Man, woman, or beast, you know, whatever. And I, I thought about it. What could stop me if I wanted to be a stand-up comedian and get to the Tonight Show? What could stop me? And I thought, drinking. I love to drink beer. I love to drink beer with the guys. 
both my parents were alcoholic at one time when I was a kid growing up. And, and I thought, yes, this could stop me because you can't go on stage with hangovers and, you know, and, and, and hang out after the show and drinking all night long. You know, you had to be sharp if you're going to write material. And I said, drinking. I said, that's it. I, I pushed these two beers across the bar. And my buddy came down. He was 10 bar. He said, through for the night, Tommy? I said, I quit. He said, you quit? I said, I quit. He said, for the night. I said, no, no, I quit. He said, yeah, right. I said, I quit drinking. He said, I'll see you tomorrow night. And I never touched another drop, you know, two years until I became a success. So I, uh, and I went out to the West Coast. I hitchhiked. I, I ended up in an old abandoned car, a Nash Rambler. I had no money. My wife and kids in Chicago. I'm living on a dollar a day. I'm eating Kentucky Colonel. They had corn and cluck for under a buck, 99 cents. And that's what I ate once a day. I would hitchhike up and down Sunset Boulevard, sleeping in this old Nash Rambler where the front seat came down in those old cars. And I would sleep in it begging to work for free at the comedy store. While I was sleeping in the abandoned car, and I couldn't even get on at the comedy store, I remembered the book I read, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. That whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. And the way that works is that just before you go to sleep that night, and when you wake up in the morning, you're a hypnotist. What do you do? You put the conscious mind at rest. And when you put the conscious mind at rest, the subconscious mind is now open to suggestion. So every night before you go to sleep, when your conscious mind is most at rest, and when you wake up in the morning, your conscious mind is most at rest. Envision the end result you want. Whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. Not how you're going to get there. Just envision the end result. You receiving that diploma, uh, uh, your, your, your wife or your husband saying congratulations, you know, uh, you know on, on, on getting your degree. Whatever the end result is, whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. It, it, you know, it works like this, as you know. You say, what was his name? Talk about it. What was his name? What was his name? Two days later at Starbucks, say, I'd like to have a coffee. You go, Tom Dreesen. Where did that come from? Once you gave the subconscious mind a problem, it won't rest till it finds a solution. Whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. While I'm sleeping in that abandoned car, I would envision Johnny Carson sitting next to Johnny Carson and him saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. Him laughing at something I said, saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. Knowing that if I was sitting with Johnny Carson, I'd already succeeded over there with stand-up comedy. Because Johnny didn't call you over to sit down. In America, if you were on The Tonight Show, you had, a, you, you know, you had be, arrived as a comedian. But to my industry, you didn't arrive until you sat down and talked to Johnny. So I envisioned Johnny talking to me, saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Beeson. I couldn't even, in those days, get on at the comedy store. I ended up doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. This is a picture I envisioned in my mind when I was sleeping in the abandoned car. Johnny Carson talking to me. This is the picture pointing. You're a funny guy, Tom Grayson. You're a funny guy. So for our listeners, he's showing us the actual picture of it happening. Yes. Yeah. I, and I do that to my classes too. You know, that, that, you know, whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. You know, the, the, your body, this is your vehicle. I tell people all the time, classes, this is the vehicle you were given. This is your airplane. This is your vehicle. Mm -hmm. The pilot who flies the 747 every day to from LA to Boston. Do you think he drives 110 miles an hour to the airport, drives out on a tarmac, runs aboard the aircraft, and takes off down the runway and says, now where am I going? He files a flight plan, or she files a flight plan. This is your airplane. Your body is your airplane. Your plane. The subconscious mind wants to know, where do you want me to go? Mm -hmm. You see the end result, you believe it, and you believe it with all your heart, and the subconscious mind says, now I know where you want me to go. 
And 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 the the great thing to observe, Tom, about you is that you paired that with doing things in the real world. You are willing to go and have experiences and do great or to have some challenges or failures, right? Like you're still standing and you got knocked down a lot, but you got back up. And I think that that, that, that is very important for people to know. Like the, from what I'm observing from reading your book and listening to the stories you're telling us now is that you were able to tune into people beautifully because you did it over and over and over in very challenging circumstances, to be a black and white comedy team in, you know, the late 60s, early 70s with mixed crowds or different crowds every night, that would be a very, you know, you you have to be pretty flexible to be able to do that. So you, you honed your craft by doing it over and over and over and being really interested in people and these kinds of dynamics. And then eventually you, you, you just became a, a master at it. Would you say that that's accurate in terms of learning how to do this? I appreciate you saying a master, but I, I'm a lifelong learner. We all are. We're lifelong learners. The day you think you've arrived, you're on your way back down again. <laughs> I agree. Yes, that, that is a good point. <laughs> so I, so I, I, I like to think that I'm learning, always learning every day. You know, the challenges that are thrown at us in life, you know, you, you have a choice, you know, uh, 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 short of, look, if somebody has a, a chemical disorder, you know, that has to be dealt with. You know, I'm obviously, yes, you know, yes. but I, I, I tell you, one time a friend of mine came to me at 52 years old. He had a heart attack and it was my, it was mild, but it scared the bejesus out of him. And, and he went into depression and, and he was really depressed and he came over and visited me and he said, Tommy, I know you give these motivation talks. I, I can't get out of this funk. And I don't know, which, which by the way, it happens a lot to people who have heart attacks. They go into a little depression afterward. And I said to him, his name is Dennis. I said, Dennis. Now, if you have a chemical disorder, I, you got to go to a doctor. I'm, I'm not a doctor. But I said, if it's something mental that you're working on, I said, the day that I started to live, truly started to live, was a day that I totally embraced the fact that one day I was going to die. When you totally, and, and all of us say, oh, we all know that. We put it on a back burner. We know that, but we put it on a back burner. But the day you totally embrace the fact that one day you're going to die, then you have a choice. You can live every day until you die, or you can die every day until you die. And he said, whoa, repeat that again. Repeat that to me. I said, you can live every day until you die, or you can die every day until you die. Thinking negative every day, worrying every day is dying every day until you one day will die. Two weeks later, he called me from the Bahamas with his wife. He said, I'm having a time of my life. You'll never know how much that one sentence changed my life. I'm going to live every day until I die. I'm going to meet challenges. I'm going to try new things, but I'm going to live every day until I, you know, until I die. I was, I was on an airplane one time, you know, when I struggled through the years and, and, and wasn't getting many jobs and had a wife and three kids. And then all of a sudden now I'm doing tonight. I'm doing uh, the Johnny Carson. Um, I'm doing um, um, Dinosaur, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas. I'm doing Midnight Special, Rock Conscious, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I'm doing Hollywood Squares, $20,000 Pyramid. I'm doing all these shows. People are calling me from all over the country because I'm doing all these TV shows. I'm working everywhere. Now, I'm on a plane one day heading east, and I looked out the window, and I saw myself on a plane going west. <laughs> and I said, I think I'm working. <laughs> you know, I'm being facetious. But on that long plane ride, i never forget, there was an old magazine there, and I picked it up. I had read everything but the air sickness bag. And, uh, and I'm, I'm reading this 
magazine about anthropology, and I, I wasn't interested in anthropology, but it was by Dr. Carl Sagan, who I later began, uh, began to admire very much. Uh, interesting guy. You can look him up on the internet if you don't know who he is, but Johnny Carson had him on a lot, uh, but he's a very fascinating guy. But anyhow, he's talking about anthropology or something. He's talking about dinosaurs ruled this planet for 250 million years. Man, in his present form, from Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal to now, maybe 100,000 years or something like that, has ruled the planet. And this planet has been here 5 billion years, he was saying. And it'll be here 5 billion more before the sun destroys the Earth, that the Earth is moving closer to the sun. And one day this planet will look not unlike Mars looks right now, scorched. And, and, and uh, I set this magazine down and said, wait a minute, this planet was here 5 billion years before I was born. Not thousands, not millions, billions. And it's going to be here 5 billion years after I die. That means my lifetime on this planet is a blink of an eye, a speck of sand, boom that you're going to spend one moment of that blink of an eye bitching and moaning and cursing your lot in life, that you're going to spend one moment of that speck of sand going to a job you hate every day, uh, uh, being around and surrounding yourself with people that are negative. You know, that every day is a celebration. Every day you open your eyes. You know, if, if every day you open your eyes, someone knocked on your door and gave you an original gift, an original gift every day, how much would you appreciate the gift? How much would you appreciate the giver of the gift? Every day is a celebration. What wonderful things am I going to do today? Whose life might I change today? Who might change mine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I love it. Robin, tell me, tell me about you real quick. Yeah, so I am a hypnotist. I've been doing this for about 15 years. Um, so I, I, I own a clinic called Burlington Hypnosis, which I recently sold to one of my students. So I, I'm no longer the owner, I, but I have a school where I, I, it's called the Hypnosis Training Canada. So I train people to become hypnotists and to open clinics like the one we have here. And so it's, I love it. it and, and some people come just because they want to grow themselves and change in the ways we talked about today. Other people want to learn to do it professionally and so I love it because you see people realize their potential and be on their mission, whatever their mission is. We have people who, you know, finally found what they want to do with their life. And just like you were saying that you you didn't like the things you did before you became a comedian, that was true for me before I came became a hypnotist. I used to do nonprofit, like social justice and environmental work. And then I worked as an IT consultant for seven years and I was not into it. You know, I did it, but it wasn't really my thing. So I was always on the search for, you know, what my mission was. And so I found it in this. And so wow. I, lo- I love your statement that you can either be living every day or dying every day. Because I was inspired to start doing this because I have a friend who died of cancer when he was probably around 30, give or take. And I was around his age. He got sick when we were around 26. And it was a huge shock to me. And at that time, I wasn't actually fully living my life in every way. I was very stuck. And so, and then in the meantime, I started to learn hypnosis. And I had just taken my very first course. But from that, I learned about what we call modeling, which is finding people who are really good at what you want to be good at. And so this friend of mine who had cancer, I knew him for a number of years before he got sick. He was always this guy who had a great attitude. He decided what he wanted to do, and he just went and he found a way to make it happen in his very quiet, humble way, but he just went and did it. And I always thought, oh, that's just Jeff. That's just the way he is. But when I started to get introduced to hypnosis, I realized, oh, I can actually learn how to be that way too. 
And so it really started me on this path. So I started to live that way. And then I realized how much hypnosis was helping me do that. So I, I got trained to help other people do that. So that, that is what I do. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, when you say hypnosis to the average person, they, of course, think of, uh, of people that sit down and now you go to sleep and put you to sleep and take you back to your past and your childhood. And when you wake up, you're going to be, you know, but you're, you're talking more about self-hypnosis, right? As opposed right. to hypnotizing another human being. Yeah, well, we do hypnotize people, but our focus is on their future and their outcomes, not on their past. So it's true that a lot of people in the hypnosis world do what's called regression, which is they take them back to traumatic events and memories and they have them relive it and feel all those feelings. And we really believe that's actually unnecessary. There are easier ways people can heal up or forgive. And it could be dangerous because the, it, it makes them more of a victim. It makes them believe in reasons why they are the way they are. So our focus in the, I'm part of a group called Master Hypnotist Society. And we really believe that we need to help people just like clean up their past, just let it go and learn how to do that subconsciously and then design their future. So when we hypnotize people, their their subconscious is more open to suggestion, just like you were talking about doing it right before you fall asleep. That's a natural state of hypnosis. Um, so we're we're using that state of mind to help people really take in the, the shifts and changes and the wisdom and learning and possibility so that they can build the future they want. That, that's pretty much what I do. So we, we found that that state of mind, we could tell people all of this, but the way they receive it matters. Because um, like, for example, with weight loss, everybody knows how to lose weight technically, but it doesn't mean they can do it. And so we need to, to communicate in a way that will help them. And, and storytelling is one way. It's very hypnotic. So we use a lot of storytelling in what we do. And you see how when you've told stories or told jokes, you've helped people change, right? You, you, access, you, you bypassed what we call the critical faculty or their conscious rational mind. And you, you, they receive the experience emotionally as a joke, right? And, or through storytelling, which evokes emotion and experience and vision. And so because of that, it helps them process the experience differently. It helps them realize different things. So that it's a very powerful way to help people change. Well, yeah, that, that's, I, I love, that, again, when the average person, when they hear hypnosis, some people are afraid to be hypnotized mm-hmm. because they you know, take them back to the regression, you know. <clears throat> but yours, I wish it had another word or something, something that would explain that I'm not going to take you back to the horrors of your child. I'm going to take you to a bright future. Yeah. Well, we, we communicate that simply because a lot of the times when people hear about us, they are presented with success stories from our other clients. So, so we're not saying, oh, come see us and get hypnotized. We're saying, hey, this person lost 50 pounds with hypnosis and we tell their story. And, and people who need that help say, hey, maybe that can help me too. And so we're using the past client success as a model for the next person. And that's usually why people come see us. And so they, they find it inspiring to learn about other people who've had success. So our whole way of, of uh, helping people is built on that. Wow, that's great. That's just really great. Yeah, I, I, I would recommend it for people who, who want to be public speakers and who are afraid, like and I said, yeah. to them and yourself out there enjoying it, you know, having fun. The oldest cliche in show business is have fun and the audience will have fun. I don't care what you're speaking about. 
But if you're going out there to real serious, go out there to have fun. I'm going to have fun today. I'm going to have fun telling my story. I'm going to have fun telling people how to be a hypnotist or how to use hypnosis. You know, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> because if you're having fun, the audience is having fun with you. And, and then it's, in, you know, but I mean, but to, you could hypnotize people. I can see how that would be, how you could hypnotize them to overcome that fear. That's right. Fear of all mankind is getting up in front of an audience. Yeah. And, and you know why that is? Because in the animal kingdom, it's considered a threat when an animal stares at another animal. So when you have all these people staring at you in your nervous system and subconsciously, you're going, oh my God, I'm in danger. So we teach people how to make, to, to shift how they're experiencing that. So we have lots of people, actually, my, the client I just saw now, she's a very successful businesswoman who was finding that this fear of doing presentations was getting in the way of her career. So she's coming exactly for help with that. Oh, great, great. If you enjoy life and you have some little secrets, pass them on. Somebody passed them on to you. You pass them on to someone else. Yeah. Well, this podcast is a great way for you to do that because that's our whole goal with this podcast is to share knowledge and wisdom and experiences with our uh, listeners so that they can use it to make their lives better. So, so the, this whole the whole purpose of why I'm doing this is exactly that. So I'm really really glad. I'm really thankful that you were willing to come on and share with us all of this great experience and, and your whole communication style is a great thing for other people to model. Uh, well, God bless you for what you're doing. God bless you because you, you never know that who you'll inspire somebody that's going to go out and inspire somebody else, can inspire somebody else, inspire somebody else over the world. And maybe that person can inspire somebody that will find a cure to cancer one day. You got it. Yeah, no, no one person can do it all. We need to have as many people as possible out there doing whatever they were here to do, what their mission is. Yeah. A guy named Mitch Album wrote many books, but he wrote a book once called The Five People You'll Meet in Heaven. And it was kind of a fascinating book because this person met five people that he had no idea he even influenced. He was an average guy. They showed him that one time you smiled at that person, that time you helped that neighbor, they they went on to help someone else, and, you, you, and, and, and it changed people's lives. You don't know. The most insignificant uh, benevolent act, you don't know how far that's going to travel and how much that's going to influence somebody. So Amazing. Well, thank you, Tom. So many amazing stories and nuggets of wisdom from comedian Tom Dreesen. And we haven't even heard his Frank Sinatra stories yet. On next week's podcast, Tom will share some of Frank Sinatra's secrets for connecting on a deep emotional level with your audience and having the courage to honor what you have to give the world. Remember to click the button to subscribe, share this podcast with a friend, and please leave us a review so you can help others to benefit from the podcast too. And if you're wanting to discover more about how hypnosis training can help you, go to hypnosistrainingcanada.com and schedule your free consultation. Until next week. You've been listening to The Hypnosis Show with Robbie Spear Miller. Tune in next time to learn more about how you can change your life with hypnosis. And if you are interested in learning more about training opportunities, go to hypnosistrainingcanada.com and schedule a free consultation.